The, uh, ooh, there we are. Okay, Luke chapter 13 is where we're going to be looking this morning as we uh, consider the end of, of this topic that we've been talking about, uh, chasing joy. And uh, so we're going to read from the scriptures in Luke chapter 13. We'll begin in uh, verse 18 and we'll read to verse 21. And then I'm going to... Um, I'm going to pray, and I want to. I want to pray uh, part of the prayer this morning. If you if you get the weekly update, then uh, you are part of the community that truly has its finger on the pulse of everything that's happening at Harvest. And if you don't, you should write on the connect card that I don't get the weekly updates, and we'll get them to you. Uh, many of you know that uh, that that up until. Um, Monday, I served as the second vice president of the Baptist Convention in Maryland and Delaware, which is a, a post which, though many of you think is enviable, uh, ultimately means I go to meetings and, um, and have, have no uh, real authority or power to accomplish much. But um, the gentleman uh, pastor out in Frostburg who, who took that role from me uh, we had a meeting afterwards, and he said, is this where you pass the mantle and give me my powers? And I said, yes, and I just put my hands on his shoulders and then took them off. Um, uh, he sent me a message this morning and said that he was praying for me and for our church. And uh, it's just, it, it is encouraging to me to see how in a day and age of, uh, of technology that, that Paul would often write to his churches and his friends and say that he was praying for them. Uh, that that he wanted to um, that he wanted them to know how he was praying, and so uh, I'm thankful to know that there are people who are not part of our fellowship who are praying uh, for me, who are praying for you, who are praying for our influence, who are praying that uh, that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, would go forth, and that uh, God would show Himself in power. Uh, what an encouragement to be connected. To people like that. So we're going to read and then we will pray. Jesus is teaching in Luke 13, verse 18. It says, He said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like the leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, we come before you this morning, and as we consider uh, this topic of our joy, which is incredibly relevant in a day and age where there is so much scandal and struggle and conflict and uncertainty and difficulty in the news around us. Finding joy, tying our rope to you, anchoring ourselves in you is so important, Lord, because we, like so many others, would despair if you did not point out the meaning, the way, and the direction of how we find joy. 
And so we're thankful that you point us to yourself. Lord, we are thankful that we are part of the story that you are telling in the world. That we are part of the the great movement and plan which you have been unfolding since the beginning. Revealed in greater fullness to Abraham and then to David and throughout by those who wrote your scripture but made plain to us in the great commission and the great commandments. Father, you call us to love you with your heart, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do good to them and then to go throughout the world and to make disciples, Father. And you call all of your people to do that, not that they would feel guilt, not that they would feel burdened and condemned, but instead in pursuing you and your plan that they would find fullness of joy. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that eyes would be opened. That, Father, someone perhaps who does not know the gospel would hear it, would hear that good news that the burden of sin is paid for, that righteousness is theirs because of what Jesus did in his life, in his death on the cross, and because of his resurrection. And Father, I pray that eyes would be opened within the church, that your people who have labored under condemnation or with a sense that that they contribute nothing to your plan or with the struggle that they don't know which direction that they're headed, instead that we would walk away from this time with fullness of joy, knowing that you have made it possible for us to live lives that are fulfilled. Because joy doesn't come from an abundance of things. And joy doesn't come from perfectly managing our lives. Joy comes from you, from knowing you and from pursuing your will and your ways. And so we pray that you would speak to us now, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, so the, the, the sermon was relatively clear, uh, but lacking an ending. I'll tell you a little bit more about the ending in just a moment. Uh, but here's the outline for the sermon. Finish off the discussion. That's part number two of what it means to chase joy. But first, review everything that we've already said, uh, compact it, and then conclude. And the easy part was renew everything that we've said. The end was a bit of a mystery to me. How do you close this off? What does it mean to chase joy? joy as Christians. First, we've talked about the fact that being who we are needs to come before doing. We need to allow all of our doing, all of our activity, all of our work for God, in quotes, to flow from who we are in Christ or we will tire out, our hearts will grow weary and bitter. Now here is confession time. I don't know what it was, but last week I made a bold statement about knowing my car and about the gas needle, and I ran out of gas on Wednesday. And I had to call AAA and say, I need gas, and the guy came with a teeny tiny little gas can. He put gas in my car. Now, 
I had to pull over on my way to Fruitland as I was taking my Korean son to meet the bus, and, and I managed to pull off onto the grass, and then I checked the situation, and I thought, I need to be a little bit more onto that grass meeting, but you know what? When, when you turn the key and you try to start the car when there is no gas in the vehicle, uh, it doesn't start. Right, you know, and and so then I'm like, oh, you know, the little the little parentheses, the lightning bolt that say like your battery is critically low lights up, and I'm like, yeah, I turn the car off, but I put the car in neutral, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna try to push this car forward into the grass median. You know what? It's really hard to push a car that's not running. It's very difficult. You know what's very easy? When the guy shows up and he puts gas back in the car and you start the car and, and the gas is in there and it's flowing in the engine, it's very easy just to say, I want to turn to the right and, and to press the accelerator and to move. That's the way the Christian life works. Not playing beat the needle, right? You know, no, that is not the way the Christian life works. Instead, this is what Jesus says. Think about this. Absorb this. John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. The supply for the branches, their, their purpose is to produce fruit. The supply comes from the vine to the branches, not in the opposite direction. It's not us who do things for God and therefore earn his affection or his favor. Instead, we receive power from God as we trust him and abide in him and know our identity. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All that we have, all that we are able to accomplish, all the good that flows from us comes from our connection, from abiding in Christ, from seeing that it is he who is the source of our power and our strength and our boldness and our bravery and our ability to accomplish anything in the world. It comes from him and flows through us. So first being, then doing. And so we talked about feeding our being, first by identifying and making room in our life, what people call margin, right? Making time, being still, and knowing that he is God. Regular reminders from the word. Daily patterns of renewal and refocus and a recalibrating of our life where we come to God in his word and in prayer. We call that abiding. First, we, we clear out the space that's cluttered and full of other things. We, we make margin and then we pursue abiding in him. We pursue God in prayer and in his word. We center our minds on truth and we speak to God in a way where we say, you are great and I have needs, you have answers, and I must trust. Speak to me, shape me, focus me. And then we talked about self-awareness where we know ourselves. Look, you know, not every single person is tempted or struggles with the same things. We need to know ourselves, know our patterns, know what landmines exist in our personality because of our histories. We need to know where we struggle because we all struggle, as James says, in different ways. We all sin. 
We all battle the temptation to be independent, but we do it in different ways. And so knowing the way in which we struggle means that we'll be able to set up guardrails and protections for ourselves. That's how we feed our being. And then we move from that to embrace our doing. We talked last week about treasure, right? What am I doing with my temple with regard to what I eat and then uh, how I conduct myself in terms of my purity. And then we talked about our treasure, how we use our money. That's one of the reasons why we struggle often is because we don't have those things in balance or in check. If our finances are out of control, that means often our anxiety will be out of control. Our worry will be out of control. And if the body does not feel well, if we're not feeding it well or we're using it wrongly, we will experience a lack of joy because we're not positioned properly to glorify God in our life. And then we've talked in weeks past about engagement. What is my grand mission in life? What do I see that God is calling me to do in the midst of his story? Yes, the Great Commission generally. Yes, love our neighbor. Yes, love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. But in us, there is a place where our deep hunger overlaps the deep needs of the world, and there we find our joy and our mission. You know, I grew up with a sense that there was more to the gospel than I was hearing, that there was more to the Christian life than just be obedient. And I think the pastor in the church that I grew up in, and I think the people around me did a good job, but in part, I think that I was growing with an awareness that there needed to be teachers of the faith. And so I said, this is going to be my mission, refined and helped by people around me who said, keep going, keep doing, keep preaching and teaching. But the the kingdom of God, the mission of God, doesn't just mean that people preach and teach. It means that, that believers go out and say, this makes God mad. This makes God sad. This makes God glad. And I am going to work to support that or correct that or fix that. And so where are you engaged in your life? What is your great cause within the great plan of God? We talked about engagement. And then we talked about relationships. And how all that we do, all that we do is built into the weave or the the context of other people that we know. That there are three things that last forever, right? There's God himself, there is the words that he's spoken, and then there are the souls of men and women. And we are called to reach a generation of people around us who we are connected to in some way who are alive right now. That is our mission, the relationships and the people around us. 
And we can work through each of these areas and say, how am I doing in terms of, of clearing my time of unnecessary things and then focusing on abiding and where am I struggling and then turning to say, how am I using my body? How am I using my resources? How is my mission? What am I doing to, to make an impact for Christ? And then, and then what do my relationships look like? And this is a way in which we can clear out areas of, of deadness or struggle and focus on the things that really matter. What I think is dangerous about a formula like this is that we live in a culture that says that productivity, accomplishment means that we set out a dream that we have for ourselves and we will make that dream come into existence. We will realize our goal by willing it to be so. Psychologists call this self-actualization. Now, here, I think, is one of the contrary pieces of the way life works when God is involved. We don't get to determine the story that is told we only get to determine how we act within his story. We don't get to determine the end. We get to determine what we do with today and what we intend to do with the rest of our lives. And so we can organize ourselves within the story. We can set up our life and we can say, I am going to make sure that I spend time with God. I'm going to make sure that I abide in him. I'm going to make sure that I don't fall into that same sin trap that I fall into again and again and again. And I'm going to manage my finances well. And I'm going to pursue a ministry consistently. And I'm going to love my family and the people around me. But you know what we don't get to do? We don't get to say, and in the final chapter of our life, this is what it's all going to have amounted to. Because our life is not a Charles Dickens novel. Our life isn't a novel at all. It's real. It's the story. And we don't get to see all the wiring and all the pieces and all the results until we are in eternity and we get to see what it all added up to. And so here is where I'd like to land all of this. The call to pursue joy is one to focus on the things that are revealed and not the secret things of God. God knows what we will amount to. He knows what we will become. And he calls us to pursue our joy within the things that he's revealed to us. I believe it's Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, but the secret things belong to God. So my appeal and encouragement this morning is this. Live as if you're not in control of everything. Because you're not actually in charge of everything. As a young married guy, I can remember sitting at a diner and watching other families and saying things to my wife like, our kids will never do that. I will never spend that much money on sneakers. As a young pastor, I emerged from seminary saying, this is the formula that equals faithfulness, and this will make the church grow. And you know what makes the church grow? Sometimes I'm not exactly sure. As a young kid, I thought, this is what I will do with my life. The psalmist says in one place, 
My line, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. I love my life, but I wouldn't have planned it this way. Do you know what I mean? Because I didn't know enough. I'd have messed it up if I were in charge. You are not in control. And you will never truly, ultimately be in control. And for many of us, that is an intensely scary thought. But here's the truth of the matter. God is in control. That is also scary until we learn to rest in the idea that God is powerful and he is good. As a young child, I was often afraid of the fact that if I surrendered to the call to follow God fully, that he would make me go live in a jungle somewhere where I would be perpetually stung by mosquitoes. That was just, it's like, no, you can't surrender. You need to retain control. Surrendering hasn't meant that. It has meant something else. God is in control. He is good, and he is building a kingdom. And so here's the banner that we must fly over all of our plans. We ought to have plans. We ought to build a way of thinking about the way that we act in the world, the way that we interact with others based on clear commands of God. We act based on principles, but we do not declare the end at the beginning. We don't say this is what's going to happen. In James chapter 4, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That might sound a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Like you're always going to say, I don't know. You know, I might die on the way to meet you at Dunkin' Donuts tomorrow for coffee. Like, if God wants me to be there, I'll be there. If not, you know, and you're always making these extremely uncertain, grim plans with people. And people are like, I don't want to talk to you. You're scaring me all the time. We don't have to live that way because we can, we can live underneath another umbrella. And that's this. Jesus says to his followers, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32 teaches us that God has a plan. His plan is his kingdom, and he is a good father and has a good plan. And so we ought not to live life full of fear. Joy is found in the pursuit of the good kingdom. I think we could call it the kingdom of who knows what's going to happen. God knows. He's the boss. We do the right things and surrender control of the outcome. We find the blessings and the joy along the way within his will. Now, this is the point at which I say, I don't know how I'm going to finish out what I'm going to say. And I was kind of, you know... Uh, working around different ideas. And then on Monday at the meeting, I heard a message from a guy. He said, you can steal this message. Jeff Christofferson, he's the vice president of the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist. And he was like, go ahead and steal this message. And I messaged him last night and I said, I'm going to steal the rest of your message, but with attribution. And then I'm going to mix it up. And if anybody ever finds it online and listens to it, it won't sound anything like it. But there'll be some points that are the same. And so you won't know what's mine and what's his, but I'm just throwing that out there. Because uh, I think that it is important to focus on 
the kingdom. It's important to focus on the kingdom. When we look at the church as it shows up in the Gospels, the church is the means or the vehicle by which Jesus is going to bring about the kingdom of God, which is God's rule on earth. We live in a world that right now is under the dominion of the devil. It is dominated by the desires of our flesh, and it is shaped by a way of thinking of, of people that is contrary to God's way and his plan. And when Jesus takes on flesh and enters this world, it is the opening battle of God taking all of his territory back as he enters back into the world that he created, creates a church. The spirit comes out of the physical temple and enters the individual believers. And that begins to spread throughout the world, beginning with one and then becoming 12. And in the inaugural day of the church, becoming 3,000 and spreading throughout the world, person by person, transformation by transformation, the kingdom comes into existence. Jesus was asked many times, when would the kingdom come? He actively resisted describing when it would come, but instead he often talked about what the kingdom was like. And so he answers, not the question he's being asked, but the question that his followers would need to know. What is the kingdom of God like? He said, what is the kingdom of God like? Luke 13, verse 18. To what shall I compare it? He says this, it's like a grain of mustard seed. A man took it and he sowed it in his garden and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. As we think about joy... Let me encourage you in these ways. In the kingdom of God, small is formidable. Small is formidable. We like big, don't we? We like big things. We like, we like uh, for you know, our team to win. We pray that today the Packers would crush the Ravens. You know, that's what we want. Yeah, that's what we want big. We want, to see, we want to see the victory take place on a national scale. We want to see our side win and the other side lose. But in the kingdom, Jesus doesn't compare the working of God to something big. He starts with something extremely small. He starts with the mustard seed, otherwise other places described as the tiniest of seeds next to nothing. And that seed is invested, planted in the ground, and it grows over time, developing naturally into something much bigger than itself. In conversations with many of you, I have often heard a humility which on one side is a good and a valuable thing. The Bible says we ought not to think of ourselves more than we are or more than we ought. But this is the, the problem with that. I believe that, that many people can, can display an intense arrogance prior to salvation, but after coming to know God and the truth about his word, we then fall victim to an opposite lie, and that is that we are absolutely nothing. And that is not true. If you are a Christian, think about this. The same spirit 
that dwelled within the Apostle Paul dwells in you. The same spirit that empowered Jesus, who was fully God, yes, but who let go of all free use of his divine powers when he became a man, and he was motivated and directed and empowered by the spirit. That same spirit lives in you. Paul prays in Ephesians that, that, the, that the Ephesians would know the great and mighty power of God working for the benefit of those who believe. The same power, he says, that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you realize that? The most significant event in human history is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that same power is active and working in you. You are not nothing. You may be dependent. You may need to check some natural arrogance at times. You may need to rein in the freedom that takes you off in a direction that God does not want you to go, but that does not mean that you are any less indwelled and empowered to do the work that God has called you to. You are small in some sense, but it is not in terms of God's empowering of you. Sometimes people will say things like, we're a small church, to which I say this. Statistically speaking, we are not a small church. The average church in the United States is between 35 and 75 people. We're not a small church. But if what we're saying is we can't accomplish something because we do not have enough, I say this. We are empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit of God, and so we are big as we need to be to do what God wants us to do right now. What do we need to be faithful in what is right before us? And we let him worry about the future. We're supposed to do something big and huge that changes the world as an act of faithfulness. So be it. Let's be faithful now and let him bring the supply. Here's the truth that follows on the idea that small is formidable. In the kingdom, uninvested is desertion. The seed was saved, protected, harvested, set aside to dry. That's what you're supposed to do with seeds, right? Like you don't take the seed right out of the apple or right out of the orange and throw it in the ground. You're supposed to let it dry out, and then you plant it in there and put a little bit of water, and, and the, 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 the mystical nature of nature, right? The water gets in there, and then it's like, I want to live, and it grows, and you know, it seeks out the sun, and it, it just explodes into something huger than it was. The, the seed... Huger? All right. All right. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll say huger more if it makes you laugh. That's good. This is the great secret I'm searching for. Um, yeah. Uh, he took the seed. The farmer took the seed. The man took what he had saved, what was in his possession, and he sowed it in the garden. The majority of churches and the majority of Christians hoard resources to themselves and they spend their money on what benefits their lives or what benefits their congregation and we then never take a view or not not us because i do think that we we're giving away 10 percent. i think that we could do more in terms of local outreach and i want to try to move the needle on that over the next couple of years we want to take steps but many times we spend the majority of what we have on ourselves and we 
say, why aren't amazing things happening? Instead, what we need to do is we need to give it away. We need to invest in what God is behind. The betrayal here would be to make this talk at this point only about money and and finances. Instead, I think this, there come opportunities where someone is going to get married or they consider a career change or their life changes and on they go, they move to another place and we think, oh, if only they were able to stay. I think about in our recent history, our friend Dylan, or a couple years ago, Sam and Brooke, who left prior to that, Keith and Elizabeth Franklin, Chris and Becky, people who, when they leave, we think, oh, this will hurt us because they're going. And yes, it's true, we miss them and we're sad that they're gone, but we don't have people permanently, do we? They do work. They accomplish things apart from us. Our task is to invest and give away, invest and give away. I don't think that the people in Antioch were like, hey, you know what, I have a great idea. We've got six good leaders in this church. Let's send two stars away, Paul and Barnabas. Bye. I'm sure they were sad. But imagine what would happen if Paul had never gone on that journey. We wouldn't have all of his letters. He wrote them to churches that weren't in existence at that time. For them to not invest is desertion of the mission. And so finding joy means digging in where we are in the mission that we've been given and investing. Not constantly planning to obey one day when we have enough resources. Instead, obeying now. Being faithful about sharing God's word, planning, planting the seeds, taking obedient steps, not not saying maybe one day I will get around to obeying the mission, but doing it now. I'll tell you what, I love the ramp building. I'm like, next year we build three ramps and we pay for one ourselves, you know? And maybe in two years we're doing three ramps a year and we're paying for all of them. Just more, more, more. Being out there and doing the work. Maybe somebody else has a brilliant idea and says, hey, maybe we should do this. Hopefully you come with the the passion to follow through on your brilliant idea and you're not saying, hey, if somebody would do this, that would be brilliant, right? be, be Be the organizing genius behind the solution. But we shouldn't say, oh no, we're not gonna do that. We don't have enough resources or people. God fills in the vacuum when we invest, when we step forward. The tree would never show up if the man did not invest what he had. In the kingdom, giving away is gain. Grace entrusted to us is not for hoarding, it's for giving. If you've ever seen an episode of Hoarders, you know that endless acquisition is not healthy, right? These folks, they turn everything into a commodity, right? And they're like, all these lids from all these containers, like I've got them everywhere. And then they keep their trash and all kinds of things. It's not healthy. A church needs to take, a Christian needs to take what it's been given and give it away, right? You know what happens if you don't squeeze the water out of the sponge? That thing smells nasty, right? You know, you got to wring it dry, 
My wife puts it in the microwave and nukes it when it smells bad, and then it smells good, you know? Not for too long. You don't want, like, a cooked sponge. You just want to, like, you know, kill the bacteria, and then you rinse it out, and it's good. It keeps, keeps going. I, there are other sponge life prolonging tips, but that's, this is not the place for it. Giving away is gain. Grace entrusted is forgiving. Look at what happens in the story here. Who comes to the tree? The tree is not ultimately for the benefit of the farmer. The farmer puts the seed into the ground. The tree grows and it says that the birds of the field come and make its home in the tree. Are birds farmers? No. But the tree is for them. What did those birds do to deserve and earn this tree? Nothing. But its purpose is to shelter them. The purpose of investing is to create a home for them, to create a place where they find refuge and safety. At some point, the church needs to say that the gospel is for Christians. Yes, it is what we ought to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of, that, that we are the people of God. God has called us to himself, and he has given us a new identity, and he has canceled out our sins because of Jesus' righteousness. God put our sins on Jesus on the cross, and Jesus pays for our sins we receive his righteousness so that we are viewed as pure as Jesus is in the sight of God. The gospel is for Christians, but it is particularly for the lost. Amen. We all start there, don't we? We all are born in need. And we all come to the realization at some point if we become a believer because somebody cared enough to plant the seed to create a shelter for us that we might have a home. Grace given is entrusted to us for giving away. And so as a church, as we pursue joy, I think what we ought to be saying in increasing measure as Christians, we ought to be saying once the base is stable, once the church culture is good and we know why we exist and what we exist for we ought to pursue our joy in bringing the gospel to other people in widening the circle if we build what if we increased what we devoted in terms of our energy and our financial output to reaching out progressively a step further each year if we said we are just going to continue to look for places to partner for opportunities to share for opportunities to have conversations with people who are not christians and to share with them this amazing thing which god has done for us that he wants them to have freedom from their burdens, light in the midst of their darkness. We're not inviting people to join into a community of people who perfectly practice everything they believe. Instead, we're saying we have a perfect Savior who covers all of our needs. And in humility, we seek to live out in obedience to him the mission that he has for us. And we want you to join with us. We want you to come along too. That's where joy is found. 
I can't tell you. I mean, I love, please don't stop saying, hey, great message. You know, that was good. That was challenging. I, I, I love that. I do. But when someone says, I've never heard that before. I understand this in a way that I didn't. Or when I'm interacting back and forth with somebody and I'm saying, no, no, no. No, your sins are canceled because of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is yours. Like, you don't understand that? You don't get that? And I'm, I'm laying it out. That's where the charge is. Joy is found there in explaining that message and in, in bringing new people into the kingdom. You know how I know joy is found there? Jesus says it. When we bring someone new into the kingdom, when we cooperate with God and we share the gospel and God draws someone and creates faith and brings them in and a new life is born, God says heaven erupts with praise. That's where joy is found. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In the kingdom, status is irrelevant. In the kingdom, power resides in everyone. Notice what is said here. Uh, yeast isn't something that you like go and, and, and buy in a packet in the store in Bible times. Uh, yeast is something that you get from your neighbor or that you, you, you leave your dough out and you allow yeast to, to enter into a portion of the dough, right, that you've set out in a bowl. You know, you've got natural airborne yeast. It's not something that you get in a package and, and you dump in. Instead, it's something that you, you take three measures of flour and you add a little bit of water and then you take some of, of this dough over here that's got yeast in it and you, you mix it in. This is the amazing thing about yeast. It is that it is the very power of life, active, right? You know, bringing life to this deadness here. And, and it creates gas that causes bread to rise. I mean, no insult to unleavened bread, but unleavened bread, well, maybe this is it, and it, it is an insult. Unleavened bread is like dry, boring cracker, right? My wife gets these take-and-baked loaves from Aldi's. Have you found Aldi's yet? It's in Easton, but it's coming here, and it will change your life if you've not been there yet. But, but there is nothing like Italian bread. I mean, I will leave, every, I would forsake every cracker for the rest of my life to just eat hot, crusty bread. Every, every day, with every meal, you know? It's good. It's like there's something so excellent about it. The little bit of dough tossed into the other dough creates power. Look at what he's saying here. Look at what Jesus is saying. When you think about the society that existed then, the woman. Women were weak and marginalized and wielded little power. She yields this, or she wields, rather, the invisible agent of change. The power is, is not in her hands, but it is facilitated by her action. She engages what she knows, and she produces that which we desire. I don't know, do they have butter? I'm not exactly sure, but man, nothing like bread, hot bread, right from the oven and butter. I could eat, 
I, I would measure my bread intake by loaves if, if I didn't have a measure of self-restraint. I could eat an entire loaf of bread for dinner. Amen. I'd be fine with it. A cup of water, loaf of bread, fine. She adds the yeast and mixes and mixes and mixes, and it works all the way through. The power here is not within the wielder. It's in the stuff itself. It's within the yeast. When we think about advancing the kingdom, it is not our ability. It's not our skill. It's not our charm. It's not our charisma. It's not the finances that we give. It's not any of those things. Instead, it is much simpler. It is the wisdom of obeying what we know of being humble to say, God, you know it's right, and I will do the thing that you call me to out of love and out of humility, and I will be faithful to follow through again and again and again and again. And what we see here is the power of God working through the agent. The stories are told about the Sunday school teacher who was faithful to teach the boy who would become the evangelist the stories are told about the pastor who labeled in or who who labored in relative anonymity for years and delivered a faithful church to the pastor who would have a worldwide global influence those are the the stories that we hear and we know and we celebrate a success but this is what i believe the majority of the, the great stories that will be celebrated by God in eternity as we see his plan of redemption work out, those stories will be ones that we have never heard. They will be people who secretly and in great humility were faithful and did the work that released the power of God into the world. There is no grand mystery of how to make the church grow. I believe it's very clear. God has given us his word. His word does the work. The spirit works through the work. And we must simply and regularly and capably lift up the word over and over and over so that people can see Jesus. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the call is to invest. The call is to lose yourself in this story, to lose your plot, your plan, your control in his overall control. To unite ourselves with his story to find the meaning of our story together. Paul says to some church in some letter, because I'm riffing right now. I don't know exactly where I'm pulling it from, but you can search on this. It's there. He says, we don't lord it over your faith as apostles. We don't, we don't say we're in charge of your faith and boss you around. He said, instead, we work with you for your joy. We're partners together. You and I, we're working together for your joy. You and I, you know what we're working together for? For my joy. Together, we pursue our joy in God's story together as we run the race of our lives together. Churches of the future, 
don't exist yet. You know, they have to worry about their own problems in 100 years. What we have to worry about is our lives now. And the faithfulness that's right before us that God is calling us to on a daily basis. We together are on our way to him together living his dream for our lives and for the world. And that is where joy is found. Yes, technique and focusing and shaping and, and, and figuring things out and, and, and getting a Bible study time and a quiet time and place. These things are important, but ultimately it does not come down to technique. It comes down to trust. Ultimately, it doesn't come down to, to having perfect, perfect habits. It comes down to us being humble enough to pursue God in the way that he's called us to. It doesn't come down to slogans and messaging and having hype music and all that stuff that people say is absolutely and utterly indispensable. It comes down to offering people Jesus, calling them to him and calling them to find their joy there. And so the appeal as we close is this, let us run together toward the kingdom. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's run the race that God has set before us without knowing whether our desired future will come to pass or whether he has a better and bigger plan for us. Let's surrender control to him and run in the way that he calls us to and in so doing find our joy. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness toward us. We pray that as a church that we would surrender the plot that your plot may take over, that we would give over the story that we are telling that your story may take prominence. Father, we pray that, that in obedience to what you have revealed, the humble, simple working out of obedience that we would find our joy there because it is there if we could just get out of our own way. Father, we pray that our church would continue to be a source of truth, but that we would grow in grace and knowledge and humility and obedience. And we pray that many would come to know you because we trusted because you worked when we were humble. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.